The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. A raft of key Chinese data misses expectations with growth slowing across retail sales, industrial output and fixed asset investment as the world's second largest economy faces renewed virus fears. Asian stocks stumble and oil comes under pressure after U.S. yields retreat after a fresh read on consumer confidence comes in at its lowest level in a decade. The Taliban takes control of Afghanistan, with President Ghani fleeing the country. But the U.S. stands by its decision to withdraw troops amid a rushed evacuation of embassy staff and American citizens. The idea that we would sign up uh, for remaining there in the midst of a civil war for another 5, 10 or 20 years was simply not in the national interest. And in corporate news, mining giant BHP is in talks to sell its $15 billion petroleum business to Australia's Woodside in a move that could help cut its exposure to fossil fuels. Let's take a close-up look at that big Chinese data print today. And you can see it's a miss right across the board. China's economic expansion slowed in July. According to a raft of data released by the National Bureau of Statistics, fresh COVID outbreaks and floods uh, that aligned with uh, supply chain bottlenecks saw retail sales and industrial output sharply miss expectations. And let's get out to Sam Vardas for more. Sam, we can see a miss on all of these key prints, uh, some of them uh, fairly significantly. Just walk us through what we're seeing and what that suggests about the state of the economy in the mainland. Good morning to you, Karen. Well, it was for all those reasons that you just mentioned that really the writing was on the wall here that we would see economic activity losing further steam in July, but perhaps not as much as the the numbers certainly revealed to us today. And what that tells us is that perhaps uh, certainly this slowdown that we're seeing in China in terms of the economy uh, is starting to intensify. Of course, we know that favourable low base effect has been fading. They factored that in uh, to some of these expectations, but certainly the officials, the Stats Bureau, did say, as you mentioned, that this was largely also down to that extreme weather. We saw that record flooding in the month of July, which took a hit to manufacturing and also consumption, but also this resurgence of COVID cases uh, over in China. And so that really led to that broad based slowdown, as you can see uh, on your screens there with a miss uh, on all three of those economic indicators, uh, also on the house prices as well. But certainly that factory output was consistent uh, with those PMI numbers that we got for the month of July, which did show factory activity activity uh, actually hitting over one year lows. It was also consistent with the trade numbers that we got for the same month with those exports also losing steam. And it does come as, of course, these producers are facing a number of challenges and headwinds with this global chip shortage and also these supply chain bottlenecks and these high commodity prices. So that all factored in. Retail sales, though, really uh, surprised to the downside, uh, rising 8.5% year on year. That was compared to the double digit growth that the market was punching for, but also that we saw in June. And that came despite services 
services sector activity uh, when it came to the official numbers and also the private numbers actually are kicking up a notch in the month of July. So perhaps a bit concerning given that consumption has largely lagged this economic recovery so far and still not up to pre-pandemic uh, levels. We do know that household consumption needs to improve before we see that do so. And that leads me uh, to jobs because unemployment was up a 5.1% last month. That was slightly higher than June, but perhaps the most worrying trend once again uh, was that for 16 to 24 year olds, uh, it actually remained much higher at 16.2%, that unemployment figure. So that certainly suggests that it is harder for those young people to get jobs and particularly at an age when a lot of them are graduating from universities. And that is particularly concerning because we know uh, that the big focus for the Chinese government is certainly uh, creating those urban jobs. Uh, we did get some official commentary. The Stats Bureau saying that the economic recovery uh, is still unstable and even. Uh, at the same time, though, it does insist that growth uh, is still at a reasonable range and expects the economy to maintain uh, the recovery despite the uh, recent COVID controls. Uh, of course, we have seen some uh, normalisation and a bit of uh, rebalancing going on, but certainly that uh, resilience of the Chinese economy is being put to the test now by a resurgence uh, of cases over on the mainland, and particularly these lockdowns and uh, these restrictions that we have seen, and particularly when it comes to the consumption side of things, because of course we know that the services sector is much more vulnerable uh, to these sorts of rules and restrictions than the manufacturing side of things. And we've already seen, of course, a number of banks downgrading their growth forecasts for this quarter uh, for China. I think what's important to also highlight is that this spike in cases did start at the end of last month. So perhaps we will see the impact of that more so in the August numbers, perhaps not so much uh, in the July numbers. And so in that sense, there has been some suggestion that August will perhaps tell a lot better story uh, given some of these shutdowns that we have seen across China. Guys, set back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for running us through those numbers. Uh, the Delta variant, though, very much front and centre for a lot of investors. Uh, pop a green, though, on the back of that date of the Chinese market. Elsewhere, you can see it is a day in the red and Japanese stocks, too, reeling from concerns around the impact of the Delta variant, concerns about the measures in Japan and dealing with COVID. That's impact some of the big stocks. Also, a flight to safety bolstering the Japanese yen. That's a negative some of the big name companies on the Tokyo market. And you can see the Nikkei 225 unwinding by 1.7%. Hong Kong trades weaker as well, down six tenths. And for the Australian market, big focus too on a corporate story that BHP has conducted a strategic review around its petroleum assets and is considering a sale to Woodside Petroleum. Those stocks trading a little bit weaker. We're talking about assets here in Australia to the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. So it is a big one for the markets as we continue to talk about an energy transition in the market. Well, U.S. Uh, stocks, let's take a look at that Friday session. A little bit of a summer lull still going on on markets and not a huge amount of activity. Intraday, you can see we're very much trapped in a range, but we are trading around records. And we saw, again, fresh levels on both the Dow and the S&P as we closed up shop. Intraday, uh, investors have been very focused on the earnings and the surprises that they've been receiving in recent weeks that's bolstered the appeal of stocks. That said, there's a fair amount of caution still, too, because of the Delta variant, and that is impacting a certain trades so that we saw Friday. Energy financials, the laggard, uh, stopping some of this upward push that you saw. Consumer staples and real estate, uh, real leaders out there in the markets as well. Now, when it comes to uh, the Delta variant, we are seeing the impact in some of the data and in surveys. Uh, the latest was in the University of Michigan uh, survey. That was one of the 
the factors that uh, moved the Treasury markets. Uh, we saw the yield dropping aggressively intraday before they were recovering, but 1.25 is where we're now trading on that 10-year as investors noticed uh, very weak levels that were crossing. What we had in the uh, WTI Brent space too on the back of that softness in the energy stocks around the data points you can see this morning, it is a weak trade. We're traveling off more than 1% on both of these trades. A little bit of geopolitical concern too, naturally, as we talk about Afghanistan, the situation on the ground there. But it is not putting a bid back into the market for gold at this stage. You can see bullion also trading lower. And let's get to those opening calls in Europe, the sort of trading week we're setting up for. You can see it is red right across the board and fairly decent levels of red at this stage. On that Friday trade, we were positive. We're up about two tenths of a percent for the European markets and trading high for the week. So it wasn't about traders we take stock of where we travel but you can see on the back foot is the early expectation this morning but uh, some of it down to the data points and survey numbers that are crossing that u.s consumer sentiment level it's fallen to the lowest level in a decade in august according to a survey from the university of michigan the unexpectedly weak reading, the third worst in about 50 years, suggests the impact of the Delta variant may be worse than feared. The data is also likely to help shape the Fed's agenda going into the Jackson Hole meeting later this month. Well, let's get into what we're seeing ahead of that Wall Street trade and whether we can sustain some of the records we've witnessed on those U.S. markets of late. Uh, here is how we approached early on. You can see uh, in the red for futures right across the board for the S&P to the Dow and the NASDAQ. Well, let's get out to David Newhauser, who is the CIO at Livermore Partners. David, we've been witnessing uh, some concerns out there on the market, but also at a consumer level. If you look at the amount of uh, traffic we are witnessing at uh, fairly significant, um, you know, exposures, grocery stores, gas stations, gyms, restaurants, retail stores, that's all started to fall in the United States now amid the spread of the Delta variant. How concerned are you about the impact of that on markets? Yeah, no. Uh, good morning, Karen. I think it's starting to see, uh, you know, more and more of an impact uh, um, in terms of the economy itself. And then I think ultimately, you know, that could bleed into uh, markets. I think one of the things the market dynamics have is just so much liquidity is still in the system and people are just trying to find a home for their capital to make a, a rate of return. Uh, so that's sort of taken front and center. Um, but like you said, the more and more as you're starting to see further details of the economy starting to erode and st- see some of the start of the stimulus come off, um, you know, that's bleeding into the numbers. And I think ultimately that could start to bleed into uh, the capital markets as well. David, we've had a lot of unloved rallies to weather in the past. And if you look at this particular one, earnings seem to still be a significant driver. And just looking at some of the forecasts for the S&P 500 for uh, 12 months time, 4949 is what I can see what one of the, the sets that uh, the market is uh, shaping up for. How optimistic do you think investors are given the, the factors we're dealing with? And we can add geopolitics into the mix too around COVID situations uh, globally at this point. Yeah, look, I think it's this is at like a really interesting uh, dynamic. Uh, we've had again so much liquidity uh, brought into the system, where uh, you know the savings rate from consumers have was very high, and then some of that money has gone to work and uh, caused you know tremendous uh, demand with lack of supply, as as you mentioned earlier. And as that has bled through to the system, you know corporations have been the big beneficiaries, and so have their equity prices. And you've seen now we're at you know peak margins, uh, operating margins over 13% for uh, the S&P 500, and we're also at peak multiples, looking at you know 21, 22 times forward earnings. 
And uh, again, that, you know, coupled with all the liquidity in the system, um, you know, puts the market at a, at a very vulnerable state, I would suggest at this point in time, where any backtracking, whether it be due to uh, the Delta variant, whether it be due to uh, the Fed starting to unwind their asset purchases, or even is just the consumer that starts to pull back a bit. I mean, all these factors could really lay into um, the the breadth of the market. And uh, at this point in time, I think we might be at the ver- early uh, innings of starting to see that take form. David, as you convey a cautious tone to us this morning, what does it mean in terms of exposures in the portfolio? Yeah, so for Livermore, I mean, our hedge fund is set up as, as we've described in the past, where we're all in kind of to commodities. You know, we think a number of the small cap um, you know, miners and, and gold and silver, as well as uh, oil and gas look, uh, you know, look like they're going to be very buoyant for some time to come, uh, just given the increased demand and lack of supply uh, from new mines and uh, new oil fields in the, in the last few years. And I think that dynamic is going to take hold uh, for years to come. So I expect, you know, more consolidation, uh, more returning capital to shareholders, either through buybacks or dividends. And, you know, we see a lot to do in that space. Um, You know, at Livermore in the past, of course, we've run a number of different activist processes with a number of different companies. And I'll tell you today, I think, you know, today there's more and more opportunities within uh, the miners in terms of uh, consolidation and even activism. So I wouldn't be surprised to start to see that going forward. But uh, that's the best space for me, I think, today. David, I want to pick up on the gold comments because we had a fairly aggressive sell-off in August and a recovery trade that's mm-hmm. taken place. But if you look at the trade today, I mean, we've had weak data out of China. We've got pictures of the Taliban in Afghanistan and we've got concerns still around the Delta variant. If these factors are not enough to lift gold price, what will it take? Yeah, I think a lot of it's just, you know, gold's been in sort of this band. And, uh, you know, I think people are viewing it that we're getting to the end of sort of quantitative easing and therefore rates are going to go up due to inflation and unwind by the Fed. And I think really I look at it more like, you know, it's a safety trade and uh, it's going to take more uh, investment, obviously, in the space. You've seen China start to build back up their gold uh, bullion positions. And I also think, again, number of new mines coming on. Uh, in the next few years is going to be very you know, lacking. And, and thus, I think gold has uh, you know, a lot further upside, especially if you start to see uh, a focus on you know, renewed inflation fears, which I suspect will occur, or even stagflation fears. And I think both of those arguments uh, hold well for gold going forward. Can I just unpick the inflation argument at this point? Because I was mentioning some of the data that we had Friday, this uh, University of Michigan survey uh, number suggesting that people are staying at home, that you've got concerns uh, that uh, are worse than what we had what, in April last year at the height of the pandemic. People's uh, sentiment now is dwindling. What do we do with that information and factor? How do we factor that into the inflation story that markets have been stirring about for months now? Yeah, no, I think it, it, you know, it plays into at least my one of my themes where I think we're more going to end up being as we look in the next uh, few years into the potential stagflation theme where, you know, we see a pullback, as you saw recently in the consumer to some extent. uh, And yet you've seen um, more and more uh, price increases through CPIs, through PPI that just numbers that remain extremely hot. 
And I think even on a pullback in economic data and economic activity, uh, you're going to see those prices remain pretty robust. And you know, with that, I think ultimately that you know that has a view. At least my view is we have a, a real potential of stagflation in future years. And you know, that's something that should be pretty scary to uh, markets, and it could should be uh, scary to consumers if that bleeds through. And uh, I think that's going to be the most troubling aspect of what we see here. Where does it leave the US dollar? Because you've got a negative on the US dollar and typical, typically if there's that flight to safety, then the greenback does uh, rear its uh, safety uh, credentials. It does tend to, to bounce back. And just looking at the, the trade right now, we've uh, come off a little bit off the highs. But why are you so weak on the, on the US dollar on your call? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we talked in the past, again, structurally, I think I'm very weak in terms of just the sort of the dynamics that are playing out. Uh, with all the massive deficit spending uh, recently in the past 18 months, uh, and then where economic growth is on a go-forward basis. And I think in the very short run, anytime you see these events, as you described, you know, geopolitical fears, uh, you know, you see inflation fears, or you see aspects of, oh, the Fed's going to pull, start to pull back and therefore strengthening the U.S. dollar. Those, to me, are short-term blips. Um, I think time and time again, it's proven that the dollar has been in a range and it's pretty resistant, uh, resilient. But I also think that as you look a little bit further out, um, you know, the path of the dollar is down uh, and I'm negative the U.S. dollar. And therefore, you know, commodities, again, uh, gold and the like are also good ways of playing that. And, uh, you know, that's kind of our position today. David, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate you staying up late for us. David Newhouser, CIO, Livermore Partners. Our U.S. colleagues will get the latest from the Fed when they speak with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren. Don't miss that first on interview at 22.30 CET. The Taliban takes control of Afghanistan, sparking chaotic scenes of embassy evacuations as the West faces mounting criticism for withdrawing troops from the troubled country. And as we go to break, we're going to leave you with some live pictures of the presidential palace in Kabul as the city starts life again under Taliban rule. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan, having entered the capital, Kabul, with very little resistance. President Ashraf Ghani has fled the country, with his team telling CNBC he was headed to Tajikistan. Reports now may suggest he'd be in Amman, but uh, US and UK troops are arriving to help facilitate the safe evacuation of the few remaining foreign nationals. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told NBC's Meet the Press it was a tough decision to withdraw, but ultimately the right one. We've been working on uh, this, uh, uh, this departure, this drawdown, uh, for months. We actually began an ordered departure from our embassy back uh, at, at the end of April. And as uh, facts have, uh, have changed, we have, uh, we've adjusted to that. It's exactly why the president sent in uh, forces that we had at our disposal to make sure that we could do this uh, in the safest, most orderly way uh, possible. So all of those plans have been in place. 
It's also true that um, in terms of uh, refugees, in terms of uh, bringing people out, uh, the system that we inherited had been decimated. And so we've been working hard to rebuild that, uh, as you know, and we've been doing that uh, in, in real time. Uh, but, but Chuck, you know, stepping back, and that's really important because I think it's, it's vital that we put all of this in context. Uh, here are the facts. Uh, as the president said, we went into Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago uh, for one mission, and that was to deal with the folks who attacked us on 9-11, to bring them to justice, and to make sure, to the best of our ability, that they would not be able to do that again from Afghanistan. Uh, Osama bin Laden was brought to justice a decade ago. Uh, Al-Qaeda, the force that attacked us, has been vastly diminished. Its current capacity to attack us from Afghanistan uh, is, uh, is uh, negligible. Uh, we have the capacity uh, going forward to make sure that we have uh, forces in the region and in place to deal with any reemergence of terrorism. That's why we went. We succeeded in achieving those fundamental objectives. And the idea that we would sign up uh, for remaining there in the midst of a civil war for another 5, 10, or 20 years was simply not in the national interest. That is the hard decision the president made. Well, let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, there's a lot to pick up on here from the, the U.S. defense of its decision to withdraw from Afghanistan to the utter chaos on the ground as you see the evacuation of embassy staff and even locals uh, with questions over the future of those locals who'd worked with the Americans for many years. Karen, you heard that the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, defending the U.S. decision to withdraw troops and also calling for a peaceful transition of power. The question now is whether or not any world power is going to accept the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan. CNBC was able to confirm late yesterday using our own sources that the Afghan president had effectively fled the country. That paved the way for the Taliban to claim the capital of Kabul and ultimately claim Afghanistan as their own after 20 years of American engagement on the ground. I think it's also very clear that US officials completely underestimated the impact and the possibilities and the capabilities of the Taliban over the past several weeks as we saw provinces and regions fall to their control. President Biden now being forced to deploy an additional 5,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan in order to maintain peace and security there and protect American military assets. But of course, this has been criticized globally for the response because it has been likened to a Vietnam moment. We saw incredible scenes of Taliban fighters entering the Afghan presidential palace armed, sitting around what would be the president's desk at the same time incredible scenes outside the U.S. Embassy in Kabul with American military assets moving in to evacuate American officials on the ground. Now, exactly what happens next remains to be seen, but we do know that the U.N. Secretary General is due to address world powers. It's likely that the U.N. will be holding an emergency summit later today in order to address this. We're likely to hear statements of condemnation from other world powers on the Taliban's response and Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, but nothing is likely able to reverse the course of history that we've just witnessed in Afghanistan over the past 24 hours. Now, separately, CNBC has also been speaking to sources in the region. Uh, we have reached out to contacts in Doha, for example. Qatar has, of course, been offering to help negotiate a uh, peace conversation between uh, Ghani, of course, the president of Afghanistan, uh, and the Taliban. However, we don't have any more information for that on, the, on that for you. We're going to be uh, continuing to follow that up. But ultimately, the question here now is how and why the Afghan National Army and the Afghan government 
were not able to protect Afghan citizens from this full Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, even after 20 years, two decades of American engagement on the ground, trillions of dollars being spent, countless lives being lost, and of course, um, what some have described as an embarrassing end to America's ultimately longest war. Karen, back over to you. Dan, thank you very much for running through the latest detail with us. Elsewhere, at least 28 people are dead and dozens have been injured in Lebanon after a bootleg fuel tank exploded or people queued to buy petrol on Sunday. The country is battling severe fuel shortages with the central bank governor defending his move to halt fuel subsidies that were draining currency reserves. Speaking in an interview this weekend, he said nobody is running the country. Almost 1,300 people have died in Haiti after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake struck on Saturday. Thousands more have been injured and displaced. Authorities now face a race against time to bring doctors to the worst hit areas before a major storm hits. Haiti was already reeling from the pandemic, a presidential assassination and the 2010 quake, which killed 300,000 people. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.